My name is Donald Rothwell. I'm from the Australian National University College of Law at the Australian National University in Canberra in Australia. And it's my pleasure to be speaking to you today about uh, the polar regions and the law of the sea. During the first decade of the 21st century, there's been a renewed focus on the polar oceans. And this has been partly driven by the attention generated by claims to an outer continental shelf made by a number of Arctic states, but also Antarctic claimant states. And those claims have been the subject of review by the Commission on the Limits of the Continental Shelf, a body set up under the framework of the 1982 United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. This interest in the polar regions has also been driven by the effects of climate change and the opening up of the polar oceans to greater international shipping and as a result of that an increased interest in the ability of commercial shipping to use the polar oceans and especially that applies in the case of the Arctic Ocean. And in addition there's been increased interest that as the ice melts fishing operations in the Arctic and the Antarctic may expand and also there are interests in potential seabed exploration and development. In addition to these developments the Arctic and Antarctic regions have been the subject of environmental clashes and disputes and that's especially been the case in the Southern Ocean where disputes have arisen between environmental protesters and Japanese whaling fleets. And in Australia, for example, uh, this resulted in Australia commencing a claim against Japan in the International Court of Justice to seek to halt Japan's scientific whaling program in the Southern Ocean. And so what we've seen over the last decade or so is an increased focus on the polar regions and maritime issues, and especially questions relating to the application of the law of the sea. And so what I intend to do today is to speak about the questions about the application of the Law of the Sea Convention, which I'll refer to as the LOSC, and associated legal instruments dealing with the Law of the Sea, and consider their application in the polar regions and some of the particular issues that arise given the very different dynamics that exist in the polar regions compared to other more temperate parts of the world's oceans. So what I'm going to do is start with a brief introduction to basically outlay some of the key principles of the law of the sea. Secondly, to consider the interaction of the law of the sea with the legal regimes that exist in the polar regions. And third, I'll undertake an assessment of some very specific issues as they relate to the polar regions. And so they will include issues of marine living resource management, non-living resource management, environmental protection, and also questions about navigation and shipping, and especially that's a relevant issue in the Arctic with respect to shipping through waters claimed by both the Russian Federation and Canada. So to begin then with uh, some general introductory remarks about the international law of the sea and the polar regions. International law recognises states as having sovereignty over their territory, which extends to all of the land territory of the state. However, that sovereignty must be recognised for the state to also be able to exercise the additional attributes that one associates with the state. 
And that's especially relevant in the context of the law of the sea because a state must be recognised as a territorial sovereign in order to be able to claim and exercise control over the range of maritime zones that a state is entitled to as a coastal state for the purposes of the LOSC. Now, this raises an interesting issue, especially in Antarctica, where the territorial claims in Antarctica have not been traditionally recognised. And indeed, in addition, the provisions of the 1959 Antarctic Treaty are also relevant in terms of how those claims are assessed and considered by other members of the international community. So the dominant position of the law of the sea has been the principle of the freedom of the seas, but this principle has gradually been wound back as a result of developments in customary international law, as a result of developments arising from the 1958 Geneva Conventions on the law of the sea, and then ultimately with the provisions of the 1982 LOSC. The result of these developments has of course been to considerably expand the, the breadth and depth of coastal state maritime entitlements, while also counterbalancing that against continuing freedoms of the seas for maritime nations and for other users of the world's oceans. And whilst that legal framework revolves around the LOSC, there are a range of additional supplementary instruments and also regional instruments that also need to be taken into account in terms of understanding the extent of the law of the sea regime as it applies generally and in particular as it applies in the polar regions. So the maritime zones that we're particularly interested in a polar context are of course the traditional maritime zones that many states have entitlements to and that of course includes the 12 nautical mile territorial sea, the 200 nautical mile exclusive economic zone, the 200 nautical mile continental shelf which of course can be extended a little further under certain circumstances, the deep seabed, the high seas and in some instances some polar states also claim a 24 nautical mile contiguous zone. In addition of course coastal states have entitlements to also claim internal waters and in some polar situations especially in the Arctic that has remained uh, contentious. Now, some of those zones are of more significance in some of the polar regions uh, than in others. So in the Southern Ocean, for example, the legal ambiguity that surrounds the existence of a coastal state means that there's been significant limitations upon the ability of coastal states in Antarctica to proclaim the full suite of maritime zones. On the other hand, in the sub-Antarctic, where territorial claims are not contested, traditional maritime zones are claimed by the sub-Antarctic claimant states. And so we have some difficulties here in terms of reconciling the position of whether or not coastal states can or cannot claim maritime entitlements in the Southern Ocean merely because of the provisions of the Antarctic Treaty and the ambiguity over the status of state sovereignty. Now, of course, those issues by and large do not exist in the Arctic. There are some contested territorial claims, but they're by no means of the same magnitude as those that exist in the Antarctic. But in the Arctic, because we have a much more populated area where we have traditional metropolitan centres, uh, we've seen much more contestation in terms of living and non-living resource management and also environmental issues. And of course, in the Arctic, we have a significant indigenous population and that raises its own distinctive issues. 
So with those general framing remarks about the interaction of the law of the sea with the polar regions more generally, I want to speak now in particular about the distinctive regimes that exist in both the Antarctic and the Arctic and see what issues arise in terms of the interactions there. So starting first of all with Antarctica, um, one of the key features of Antarctica is that of course in 1959 the states that had made claims to territorial sovereignty in Antarctica and also those states who hadn't asserted claims such as the United States and the then USSR, they all came together at a conference convened by the United States in Washington in 1959 which ultimately concluded the provisions of the Antarctic Treaty and that treaty remains in force today. Now that treaty has provided the foundation for what is commonly called the Antarctic Treaty System which reflects the fundamental provisions of the treaty but also the expanded additional legal regimes that have been negotiated over time. And those conventions include the following, the 1972 Convention for the Conservation of Antarctic Seals, the 1980 Convention on the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources, predominantly referred to as CAMELAR, and then the 1991 Madrid Protocol on Environmental Protection, also to the Antarctic Treaty. Now a focus of those three additional instruments is that they've all had a strong focus on various dimensions of the Southern Ocean. With CCAS, the Sales Convention, and CAMELAR in particular, being predicated on the regulation of marine living resources. Now, the Antarctic Treaty also contains some core provisions which lay down some fundamental principles in terms of the interaction with the law of the sea. And for example, some of those provisions deal with matters such as demilitarisation, the importance of science, the resolution of sovereignty claims, and the freedom of states to undertake scientific research in particular. So to that end, the ability of the Antarctic Treaty System to build and expand over the time since the 59 Antarctic Treaty has been enforced, which was since 1961, has been a significant dimension of the Antarctic Treaty System. And in parallel with the developments in the law of the sea that I've been already briefly speaking about, we've begun to see some interesting interactions between the legal regime of Antarctica and the Southern Ocean and the general legal regime of the law of the sea. So making some observations then about the similar interactions that exist in the Arctic. The third United Nations Conference on the Law of the Sea, which negotiated the LOSC uh, when it met in the 1970s, specifically didn't include the polar regions on its agenda. Nevertheless, the conference did prove to be the place where states reached agreement on one of the more distinctive provisions in the Law of the Sea Convention, and that's Article 234, which addresses environmental protection in ice-covered areas. And Article 234 was specifically promoted during the Law of the Sea Convention by the USSR and Canada. For Canada, this was a very important development because it sought to give legitimacy to Canada's then Arctic Waters Pollution Prevention Act, legislation adopted in 1970, which was designed to provide for more expansive Canadian jurisdiction and environmental capacity to regulate the waters to the north of the Canadian Arctic Archipelago. And this was one of the key objectives of Canada when it came to negotiating the Law of the Sea Convention uh, in the 1970s. Nevertheless, as I've said, 
the LOSC by and large, with the exception of Article 234, makes no specific provision uh, for the polar oceans. And so this has raised some issues over decades as to whether there's some ambiguity as to whether the law of the sea actually applies in the polar oceans. And in Antarctica, that's particularly an issue because of the ambiguity that I've discussed already about the existence of coastal states. Now, while this ambiguity exists with respect to the existence of coastal states in Antarctica, this has not really stopped the Antarctic Treaty claimants, of which there are seven, from seeking to assert uh, attributes of state sovereignty consistent with provisions under the Law of the Sea Convention. So to give an example of that, in 1999, Australia proclaimed a 200 nautical mile whale protection zone within an area uh, that shadowed and was equivalent to the entitlement that Australia would have for an exclusive economic zone offshore the Australian Antarctic Territory. And much of the objective under the Australian Whale Protection Sanctuary was to seek to place limitations on the ability of states like Japan from undertaking uh, lethal whaling activities in waters offshore the Australian Antarctic Territory. Now, in the case of the Arctic, on the other hand, uh, any ambiguity that may have existed with respect to the application of the Law of the Sea Convention was removed in May 2008, when representatives of five of the Arctic states, uh, Canada, uh, the United States, the Russian Federation, uh, Denmark and Norway, uh, they came together and issued what's called the Elusiat Declaration. Now, the Elusiat Declaration is a non-binding uh, soft law instrument. It's not in treaty form, but it's taken on quite some considerable significance in terms of indicating a key position that those five Arctic states with, take with respect to the law of the sea and its application in the Arctic. So the declaration is prefaced by acknowledging that the Arctic Ocean uh, back in 2008 was at the threshold of significant change, references made in the declaration to the growing impact of climate change, uh, the melting of ice, uh, the impacts upon vulnerable ecosystems uh, and the consequences for the livelihoods of indigenous communities and their inhabitants and also the consequences for natural resources within the Arctic. And accordingly the declaration says that those five literal Arctic states uh, by virtue of their sovereignty and their sovereign rights and jurisdiction uh, in the Arctic Ocean, uh, their view is that they possess, and I quote, uh, that they're in a unique position to address these possibilities and challenges. And accordingly, the Elusiat Declaration seeks to outline uh, the extent of what that position might be. The Declaration observes that there's, and I quote again, an extensive international legal framework that applies to the Arctic Ocean. However, interestingly, the, direct, the Declaration makes no precise reference to the LOSC. Nevertheless, the Declaration is very precise as to what it has to say about the law of the sea, which is as follows, and I quote again, and here you'll see in the slide, that the law of the sea provides for important rights and obligations concerning the delineation of the outer limits of the continental shelf, the protection of the marine environment, including ice-covered areas, freedom of navigation, marine scientific research, and other uses of the sea. We remain committed to this legal framework and to the orderly settlement of any possible overlapping claims. Now, 
The Arctic Five states then go on to observe that this framework that they've outlined provides what they call a solid framework for responsible management by the five coastal states and other users of this ocean through national implementation and application of relevant provisions. So the declaration is, if you like, uh, a starting point for how these five critical Arctic states saw the application of core principles to the law of the sea in terms of resolution of any ongoing issues between those five states about uh, law of the sea and maritime issues in the Arctic, but also they're laying down a pointer to other states who may be on the fringes of the Arctic or states who are, who are at some distance from the Arctic in terms of how they should interpret and apply these key international law provisions when they come to think about the Arctic and its maritime domain. Another important point that the Lusiad Declaration reaffirms is the role of the Arctic Council in terms of its ongoing management and oversight of Arctic issues. And this was also seen as an important point at the time in terms of recognising that whilst the Arctic doesn't have anything equivalent to the 1959 Antarctic Treaty in terms of a sub-regional management framework, the Arctic Council is increasingly taking on management responsibilities on behalf of the Arctic states, working with international law frameworks and other soft law frameworks to develop mechanisms for the management of a range of uh, common Arctic regional issues. So I've now provided you with uh, a sense of some of the, the core law of the sea issues, and I've also provided you with something of an introduction to how uh, the law of the sea framework as provided for in the LOSC interacts with the distinctive uh, legal and other political frameworks that exist in Antarctica and also in the Arctic. So let's now move to uh, look at some of what I'll call the critical issue areas that exist in the polar regions and how they've been addressed uh, using the provisions of the LOSC. And we're going to start by looking at marine resource management. And in particular, we'll start by looking at uh, the Southern Ocean. And so uh, here you'll see a slide that refers to the provisions of Camelar, and in particular, the area of application of Camelar uh, generating uh, a boundary that uh, extends beyond, of course, uh, the Antarctic continent, but in some cases extends beyond the limits of the Antarctic Treaty, which has a limit of 60 degrees south. So Camelar was developed in 1980 as a result of a concern about a legal vacuum with respect to the inability of the uh, Antarctic Treaty parties to properly control marine living resource management in the Southern Ocean. There was also a concern that unregulated access to marine living resources such as krill in the Southern Ocean could see uh, those resources over overfished, uh, which would have a significant impact upon the uh, Antarctic marine ecosystem. So Camelar negotiated in 1980 uh, is considered to be a very groundbreaking international legal instrument. Uh, the convention did not rely upon traditional uh, geographic outer limits, but rather sought to adopt uh, an ecosystem approach. And so if you look at the slide, you'll see that the boundary of Camelar is not consistent based on a series of set coordinates, but in fact varies to reflect uh, the ecosystem whereby the uh, Antarctic uh, marine waters of the, the Southern Ocean uh, intersect with the warmer, more temperate waters uh, to the waters above. And that area, that point of intersection, is commonly referred to as the Antarctic Convergence. 
Now, as I mentioned, uh, one of the primary objectives of Camelab was to seek to regulate the fishing of krill. So it has a very strong focus on marine living resource management, though with one exception, it doesn't deal with whales. And the reason why it doesn't deal with whales is because of the pre-existing existence of the provisions of the 1946 Whaling Convention. And I'll speak to that a little later. Now, during the lifetime of Camelar, uh, one of the critical challenges that the regime has faced is dealing with uh, what's referred to as illegal, unreported and unregulated fishing, or commonly known as IUU fishing. And so reflecting the challenges associated with dealing with IUU fishing in a very distant and remote part of the world, such as the Southern Ocean, uh, it's been necessary for the state's parties to Camelar to develop a range of innovative, cooperative maritime surveillance and enforcement arrangements. And so one example of that is a series of arrangements negotiated between Australia and France with respect to their shared maritime zones in the sub-Antarctic between Heard and Macdonald Islands, which are the Australian territories, and Kerguelen, uh, the French territories. And in my view, these arrangements are some of the most advanced bilateral arrangements of these types uh, that one can see around the world. Maritime regulation and law enforcement with respect to IUU fishing as I've said, has been a major issue in the Southern Ocean. And uh, as a result, uh, there's been a very strong focus on how states can seek to respond to these challenges, both through national law enforcement and also through collaborative law enforcement using the Camelar mechanisms. And this has resulted in some fairly uh, high profile law enforcement uh, issues that have arisen in the Southern Ocean, some of which have found themselves before international courts and tribunals. One of the most high profile of those uh, involved a Russian flagged vessel uh, called the Volga. Uh, and the Volga uh, was engaged in long line fishing uh, in the exclusive economic zone uh, adjacent to uh, Heard Island and Macdonald Island, uh, part of the Australian territories. The vessel was fishing in the Australian fishing zone and the vessel was arrested for illegal fishing uh, in 2002. Now that maritime operation uh, involved the Australian Navy, frigate HMAS Canberra, and a boarding party that was dispatched by a helicopter. And then after the arrest of the Volga, it had to be escorted uh, back across the Southern Ocean uh, to the uh, Australian port of Fremantle in Western Australia, a journey of approximately 2,500 nautical miles. And, was it, and it was at this point when the Volga was returned to Fremantle that a number of legal issues arose with respect to uh, the legitimacy of the arrest, uh, whether or not a hot pursuit of the vessel had occurred, uh, and whether Australia was under an obligation of prompt release of the vessel and its crew uh, following its detention. This was a matter that eventually found its way before the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea. And ITLOS uh, found in favour of Russia in a decision uh, in which promptly, prompt release was required. And it was found that Australian fisheries law was contrary to the LOSC with respect to the setting of a reasonable bond. And in doing so, this decision highlighted some important issues with respect to the enforcement challenges dealing with IUU fishing in the Southern Ocean, even for those states such as Australia where sovereignty was not really contested. Now, I mentioned that one of the issues that could have raised, been raised in the Volga was that of hot pursuit. Now, ultimately, this was not determined uh, by the tribunal. But there are two other cases involving Australia and hot pursuit in the Southern Ocean, which just highlight uh, some of the really interesting legal questions and indeed challenges in terms of law enforcement. 
So the first one of those uh, related to the, the South Tomi, which, is a, which was a, a, a Togo-registered vessel. And in 2001, uh, it was pursued uh, from within the Australian Exclusive Economic Zone adjacent to Heard Island by the Australian-flagged Southern Supporter. And this hot pursuit took place over, a, over the course of 14 days, over 3,300 nautical miles, until two South African naval vessels uh, with Australian personnel on board were able to intercept the South Tomi and eventually effect an arrest 320 nautical miles south of Cape Town. And then in a similar case in 2003, uh, in the instance of a Uruguayan registered vessel called the uh, Verasa One, uh, that vessel was also pursued by the Southern Supporter, but this time for a total of 21 days over a total of 3,900 nautical miles until the pursuit was brought to an end as a result of collaboration between uh, South African and UK uh, enforcement flagged vessels. Now, this once again raises a series of interesting questions with respect to the right of hot pursuit under the law of the sea. And the provisions of Article 111 on this issue are in fact silent as to whether or not third states can engage in supporting uh, a coastal state who's seeking to undertake hot pursuit uh, to effect a pursuit and ultimately bring about the arrest of a delinquent vessel. Nevertheless, uh, no protests were brought by Togo or Uruguay as a result of these arrests uh, and no matters were taken before any international court or tribunal. And therefore that would seem to uphold uh, some of the principles of coastal state enforcement of laws and regulations in the Southern Ocean uh, that were being advanced in cases here by Australia. Now, as I've mentioned, uh, Australia and France have been proactive in terms of trying to address some of the unique legal issues that arise with respect to maritime regulation and enforcement concerning uh, marine living resources in the Southern Ocean. Uh, and that's illustrated by a 2003 Australia-France bilateral treaty. Now, this treaty only applies in the territorial sea and exclusive economic zone of the Australian and French uh, sub-Antarctic territories in the Southern Ocean and it allows each state to request assistance from the other uh, to bring about uh, the arrest and detention of a vessel uh, while a hot pursuit is being engaged in. Also, interestingly, uh, it allows hot pursuit to be continued through the territorial sea of the other state, uh, providing uh, advance notification has been given and permission has been uh, given, and also providing no physical law enforcement is actually taken within the territorial sea of that other state. Now this uh, agreement between Australia and France has also been supplemented by a 2007 agreement uh, which also deals with other related aspects of cooperative fisheries enforcement between Australia and France. So these types of cooperative fisheries enforcement uh, measures that apply in the Southern Ocean uh, are quite distinctive, they're quite innovative, but they also reflect some of the challenges for coastal states uh, applying the core provisions of the Law of the Sea Convention in, in a very distant and remote part of the world's oceans and where they need to work with partners to bring about effective uh, law enforcement. Now, in the Arctic, uh, we don't necessarily see precisely the same, the same issues duplicated, but nevertheless, uh, we still necessarily see uh, mechanisms for uh, regional and sub-regional management of fisheries issues. Now, there's been a, a long-standing history of uh, debate and disagreement uh, between Arctic states about Arctic fisheries management 
the Icelandic fisheries case before the International Court of Justice is a good example of that. And there's been ongoing disputes between uh, some of the uh, Arctic states and states who are close to the Arctic, such as the United Kingdom, in terms of access to and utilisation of Arctic marine living resources. In recent years, however, we've begun to see uh, more developed mechanisms and frameworks uh, resulting in, in clearer international law agreements to address some of these issues. And an example of that would be the 2010 uh, Norway-Russia Barents Sea and Arctic Ocean Treaty, which delimits the exclusive economic zone and continental shelf of those two states and also resolves several outstanding issues with respect to fisheries management, such as the effect of what was previously known as the 1978 uh, Grey Zone Agreement. Now, in the Arctic, we also have a, a range of other distinctive bilateral management frameworks which deal with particular fish docks. Uh, examples of that can be seen in the uh, Northeast Atlantic Fisheries Commission, uh, NAFCO, uh, and the North Atlantic Salmon Conservation Organisation, uh, NASCO. And they obviously deal with certain particular fish docks on a regional and sub-regional basis. So, turning from the issue of marine living resource management to non-living resource management where our focus is particularly on oil and gas issues. In the Southern Ocean, uh, Article 7 of the Madrid Protocol, which was one of the instruments that I referred to previously as being part of the Antarctic Treaty System, uh, places a prohibition on all mineral resource activities. And the effect of uh, this provision uh, is to really remove uh, all oil and gas development from Antarctic discourse for the time being. In other words, there's no real possibility that parties to the Madrid Protocol can even contemplate engaging in offshore oil and gas development because of the effect of Article 7 of the Madrid Protocol. However, notwithstanding that, uh, recent interest in uh, extended continental shelf claims beyond 200 nautical miles by Antarctic uh, Treaty parties and also territorial claimants has revived interest about the potential for Southern Ocean oil and gas activities to occur at some point in the future. Now this is also a matter of considerable interest in the Arctic and perhaps even more so uh, because of the much greater capacity for Arctic states to engage in oil and gas development and of course that is already occurring in parts of the uh, continental shelves uh, in uh, the uh, Beaufort Sea, offshore Alaska and Canada and also in areas offshore uh, the Russian and Norwegian Arctic. So a critical issue here is the ability of whether or not uh, Arctic states are able to assert potentially uh, an extended continental shelf beyond 200 nautical miles, relying on making of submissions to the Commission on the Limits of the Continental Shelf. And here we've seen quite a bit of activity. So Russia was the very first state uh, to make a submission before the Commission in 2001. And in 2015, it made an Arctic resubmission, which is currently uh, going to be considered by the Commission at some point in the future. Norway has also made a submission before the Commission in 2005 and 2007. Uh, Denmark has made a partial submission to the Commission with respect to its Arctic territories in 2009 and 2013. Uh, and Canada uh, is in preparation of making an Arctic submission uh, before the Commission on the limits of the continental shelf. Now, one important state that's missing from that group is the United States, and of course because it's not currently a party to the Law of the Sea Convention, its ability to make such a submission is compromised. It's therefore anticipated that over the uh, next uh, few years, and indeed next uh, decade or so, 
the Commission on the Limits of the Continental Shelf will need to make some determinations, A, as to the status of these various claims, and B, as to whether or not some of these claims overlap with each other, and therefore it will be necessary to address uh, entitlements to overlapping or contested areas uh, within the Arctic. Now, in the Southern Ocean, uh, we've seen a slightly similar process in that uh, Antarctic claimant states have also made submissions before the Commission on the Limits of the Continental Shelf. But there's been no real uniformity in that approach, and much of that revolves around the issue of the contested sovereignty and the ambiguous sta status with respect to sovereignty uh, in the Southern Ocean. So Australia, for example, uh, began a process of gathering all of the necessary data that was needed for a uh, submission to the Commission on the Limits of the Continental Shelf, including both its Antarctic Territory and its sub-Antarctic possessions. But ultimately, it only asked the Commission to consider its sub-Antarctic territories, those territories where sovereignty was not contested, as opposed to uh, any potential uh, claim offshore the Australian Antarctic Territory. Six states, however, responded to the Australian submission before the Commission. Uh, they included Germany, India, Japan, the Netherlands, the Russian Federation and the United States. And all of those states made clear that in their view, uh, as a result of the provisions of Article 4 of the Antarctic Treaty, that there were particular constraints placed upon parties to the treaty to be able to assert rights or claims over the seabed offshore Antarctica. Effectively, they were saying to the Commission, well, look, in our view, it's not appropriate for the Commission to even consider this submission uh, because Australia's sovereignty over Antarctica is not confirmed. Now, of course, because Australia didn't ask the Commission to ultimately review that submission, that issue is moot, but nevertheless, those, state, those six states made their position on that point very clear. Now, New Zealand, on the other hand, when it made its submission to the Commission on the Limits of the Continental Shelf, it sought to reserve its right uh, to make such a submission with respect to its Antarctic Territory, referred to as the Ross Dependency, at some point in the future. And so, as at mid-2016, uh, Australia, Argentina, France, New Zealand, Norway and the United Kingdom have all made submissions to the Commission on the Limits of the Continental Shelf that relate to their Antarctic and Southern Ocean Territories. However, the Commission has not made any recommendations to date that deal with any entitlements offshore the Antarctic continent, but it has made recommendations with respect to the sub-Antarctic territories, remembering once again that their sovereignty by and large is not contested and accordingly the states are able to uh, legitimately assert those entitlements without issues arising under the provisions of the 1959 Antarctic Treaty. Now, with respect to marine living resource management, I've made some observations with respect to uh, fisheries, especially in the Arctic and the Antarctic. Um, and I've made observations about the significance of CCAS with respect to the SEALS Convention uh, and CAMELAR, and also a range of associated international instruments. Uh, when we come to the Arctic, uh, as I mentioned previously, one of the dynamics that we're seeing there is the ongoing role of the Arctic Council. Now, the Arctic Council evolved out of a process that was commenced in the early 1990s uh, based upon what was then called the Arctic Environmental Protection Strategy. And this has evolved over a number of decades now to see uh, the Arctic Council take on increasing oversight of a range of common Arctic issues. And one of those certainly relates to uh, marine environmental issues. And so the Arctic Council has a number of working groups that address 
uh, common issues of Arctic concern, including the Arctic Monitoring and Assessment Program, commonly referred to as AMAP, and the Conservation of, Anti of Arctic Flora and Fauna, CAF, and the Protection of the Arctic Marine Environment uh, Working Groups. So all of these working groups are, are continuing to work with the Arctic Council in terms of raising a, a range of Arctic issues and seeking to promote uh, common management frameworks, uh, but also from time to time looking at the potential for additional international legal, legal instruments to bring together uh, a more robust legal framework to deal with these particular issues. Now in the case of the Southern Ocean, uh, one interesting area of development there in terms of environmental protection has been the role that the Madrid Protocol has played in terms of focusing upon some particular environmental issues uh, in the Southern Ocean marine environment. In particular, we see that Annex uh, 3 of the Madrid Protocol deals with uh, waste disposal and waste management of issues at sea. Annex 4 deals with the prevention of marine pollution and Annex 5 deals with area protection and management. And so all of these have application to various components of the Southern Ocean. Now, by and large, um, the Southern Ocean in, and, and the Arctic Ocean, in addition to the provisions of the Law of the Sea Convention, are of course also subject to a range of other global uh, marine environmental protection measures. So just to give an example of some of those, we can refer to the 1946 International Convention for the Regulation of Whaling, the 1992 Convention on Biological Diversity, and of course the 1992 United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Now, the Whaling Convention in particular has particular application uh, because of the historical abundance of whale stocks in the polar regions, uh, the significance of whaling for Arctic Indigenous peoples in particular, and the evolution of whaling from a resource management issue uh, to an environmental issue uh, in more recent decades. And we've particularly seen that in the context of the Southern Ocean in Antarctica. So let's just focus in on one issue with respect to whaling, which is highlighted in the slide. And so since the late 1980s, uh, Japan in particular has conducted scientific uh, research programs in the Southern Ocean. And these have been quite divisive uh, in terms of the international community more generally, but for some Southern Ocean states such as Australia and New Zealand. Now, whilst the International Convention for the Regulation of Whaling or the Whaling Convention was originally promoted as a convention to regulate commercial whaling, that convention has evolved over time to take on a much stronger environmental focus. And that's currently reflected in the schedule to the Whaling Convention, which has imposed a moratorium on all commercial whaling taking place anywhere globally. It's also reflected in the declaration of a Southern Ocean Sanctuary within the framework of the Whaling Convention uh, through the International Whaling Commission. However, Article 8 of the Whaling Convention does not prohibit uh, the taking of whales for the purposes of scientific research. And so we've seen the phenomena develop, develop of some states seeking to issue Article 8 permits to allow whaling activities to take place uh, for the purposes of scientific research. And Japan very prominently uh, commenced such a process uh, in 1987 with the issuing and commencement of its first uh, JAPA program. Uh, JAPA stands for Japan Wild Research Program under special permit in the Antarctic. And the JAPA program ran from 1987 to 2005 
uh, and the principal focus in that time uh, was research into minke whales. And then in 2005, uh, Japan announced its intention uh, to conduct the second phase of the JAPA program called JAPA 2, with a pro projected annual take of whales uh, of approximately 800 minke whales, but also humpback and fin whales also being included in that projected take. Now, while the take of humpback whales was suspended, uh, Japan did commence JAPA 2, and uh, Australia and New Zealand and some other countries strongly protested against Japan's actions. And ultimately, in 2010, Australia elected to commence proceedings against Japan uh, in the International Court of Justice, contesting the legitimacy of the JAPA 2 program under international law. And in March 2014, the International Court of Justice found that JAPA 2 uh, was being conducted in a manner that was not consistent with the Whaling Convention. It was found that Japan's actions uh, were not consistent with Article 8 of the Convention, uh, that this was not consistent with uh, activities being undertaken for the purposes of scientific research, and accordingly Japan was ordered to halt uh, its conduct of JAPA 2, which Japan did. Now, in 2015, Japan announced uh, the conduct of a new whale program called New Rep A, and Japan has commenced that whaling program. Japan asserts, however, that the program is consistent with the ruling of the International Court of Justice and consistent with its entitlements to undertake such a whaling program under the provisions of the Whaling Convention. So let's now turn to look at shipping issues uh, in the polar regions. Now, the polar regions are interesting because they are not necessarily amongst some of the world's uh, major trading routes. And so there's not huge volumes of shipping that pass through the polar oceans. But nevertheless, there are contentious issues. They relate to issues of sovereignty and jurisdiction and also uh, marine environmental uh, management. And in particular, they have raised issues in the Arctic. So surface navigation in the Arctic has particularly been very difficult historically as a result of the presence of large volumes of ice uh, that have covered the Arctic Ocean and adjoining waterways. And so the freedom of navigation in the Arctic has been difficult to realise, but there's always been an understanding that if the Arctic Ocean became more accessible, well then uh, the potential for the development of new trade routes would make the Arctic Ocean more attractive to commercial shipping more generally. So two Arctic routes in particular have uh, focused attention. Uh, one of those is the Northwest Passage and the other is the Northern Sea Route. The Northern Sea Route runs along uh, Russia's northern coast and as it predominantly falls within uh, Russian coastal waters, there's by and large been little dispute about Russia's ability to substantially control navigation within those waters consistently with the law of the sea. Though from time to time, certain issues have certainly been raised about the extent to which Russia seeks to regulate some aspects of the Northern Sea Route. The Northwest Passage, on the other hand, is a series of interconnected uh, small straits which connect up the waters that make up what is commonly referred to as the Canadian Arctic Archipelago and allows vessels to navigate uh, from one end of the American Arctic uh, at the Beaufort Sea uh, out uh, through uh, the Northwest Passage, uh, ultimately uh, into Davis Strait and accessing the Atlantic Ocean uh, through exiting through the Canadian uh, Arctic in the east. So this has raised issues about uh, navigation and also 
uh, how vessels can be subject to marine pollution regimes as they pass through uh, these waters. Now, the principal marine pollution regime is not found in the Law of the Sea Convention, but is of course found in the 1973-78 MARPOL Convention, uh, the International Convention for the Prevention of Pollution from Ships. Now, the MARPOL Convention and its status is unquestioned, and that's by and large been a very successful regime, but the MARPOL Convention relies upon coastal state enforcement. And so here, once again, we come back to the difficult issue as to the existence of whether or not uh, there are coastal states in the Southern Ocean, and in particular, the ability of those coastal states to be able to apply and enforce their laws and regulations. Now, something of a backup for that can be the role of port state and flag states. Uh, but once again, there are some issues associated with that, especially in terms of uh, enforcement uh, in very distant uh, waters such as we find in the Southern Ocean more generally. Now, Annex 4 of the Madrid Protocol seeks to also address these issues, but that is also dependent on states being parties to the Madrid Protocol. So here we can see some of the challenges in terms of applying and enforcing uh, international laws and regulations in very distant and remote parts of the world's oceans, such as in the Southern Ocean. Now, fortunately, because the Southern Ocean has not necessarily been uh, a waterway where we've seen huge volumes of international shipping, uh, many of these issues, uh, whilst they're concerning, have not really uh, com come to a significant global prominence because we've seen uh, no major marine pollution incidents arise in the Southern Ocean. Now, one recent development which is of interest in this regard has been the development uh, within the framework of the International Maritime Organisation of a Polar Shipping Code, and that will uh, go some way to putting in place additional mechanisms to ensure uh, greater cohesion and greater adherence to basic minimum standards in terms of marine pollution provisions uh, within the polar oceans, but also recognising the distinctive nature of the polar oceans and the need for uh, more stronger, more robust uh, marine environmental protection measures given the uh, marine environment that exists there and the fragility of the marine environment in that particular area. Now, let's move back to uh, this interesting issue of shipping and navigation and especially the issues that exist uh, in the Arctic. And so this slide here shows you the Northwest Passage and it gives you a sense in terms of the various different navigational routes that can exist uh, within the Northwest Passage. And as you'll see that there are a number of potential routes that can be followed by ships as they pass through those waters. Uh, but by and large, because of the presence of ice, historically, uh, it's been very difficult for any regularity to develop uh, with respect to uh, navigation enti navigational entitlements uh, through the Northwest Passage. These issues, however, did come to a head and in international prominence in 1969 uh, following the, the voyage of the vessel SS Manhattan uh, from the Beaufort Sea through the Northwest Passage to the Davis Strait. Now the Manhattan was a US flagged uh, super tanker uh, which was carrying a small quality, quantity of oil that was intentionally sent through the Northwest Passage by its US owners to demonstrate the potential for super tankers to be able to uh, take oil uh, on cargo uh, through the Northwest Passage and potentially open up this as a major shipping route for the transportation of oil uh, from the Alaskan oil fields to the east coast of the United States. And at the time, uh, in 1969, this was only the fifth recorded voyage by any vessel 
uh, through the Northwest Passage. Now, the voyage of the Manhattan provoked particular controversy in Canada. It was seen as being a contestation to Canada's claims and entitlements to the Arctic, and in particular, it was seen as a threat to Canadian sovereignty. And so in 1970, uh, when it was proposed that the Manhattan would undertake a second of these voyages, uh, the Canadian government uh, sought to respond. And so at the time, the uh, Liberal government of Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau uh, adopted a series of measures which resulted in the enactment of the Arctic Waters Pollution Prevention Act, the extension of the Canadian Territorial Sea from 3 to 12 nautical miles, and the modification of Canada's acceptance of the compulsory jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice so as to place a limitation on the capacity of the United States to challenge these actions before the ICJ. Now, the US response at the time was that international law did not provide a basis for Canada's, and I quote, unilateral extensions of jurisdiction on the high seas. Now, the next uh, transit by a US flagged vessel of some controversy arose with respect to the Polar Sea, which you can see uh, an image on, uh, of on the slide. Now, the Polar Sea transit occurred in 1985, when it was announced that the US Coast Guard cutter, the Polar Sea, would seek to also transit the Northwest Passage in a similar fashion to the Manhattan. And this was part of a voyage to reposition uh, this Coast Guard vessel from Greenland uh, to the US West Coast. Now at the time, uh, the United States indicated in diplomatic correspondence with Canada uh, that in its view, uh, this would be the exercise of a navigational right uh, that doesn't require prior notification, but it recognised that Canada may not necessarily share this position. There were further diplomatic exchanges between uh, Canada and the United States on this matter, uh, in which it was quite clear that both countries really had different views about the uh, navigation enti navigational entitlements that exist uh, through this body of water making up the Northwest Passage. The, the policy completed its transit uh, on the 11th of August, uh, and very soon thereafter, the Canadian government uh, in the House of Commons in Ottawa uh, issued a policy statement uh, outlining its position with respect to what it referred to as uh, Canadian Arctic sovereignty. And Foreign Minister Joe Clark at the time announced that uh, there would be six new initiatives adopted in response to this passage uh, by the policy. They included the declaration of straight baselines around the islands that make up the Canadian Arctic archipelago, new legislation to enforce Canadian civil and criminal law in the waters of the Canadian Arctic, uh, and talks with the United States over further cooperation over Arctic waters. And indeed, uh, that resulted in the adoption in 1988 of the Agreement on Arctic Cooperation between Canada and the United States, uh, which is often linked as being uh, an initiative in which both countries tried to move forward and try to settle some aspects of their disagreement about over the status of Canadian Arctic waters. The agreement focuses on the shared interests of both countries in terms of research conducted during icebreaker navigation through Arctic waters and commits both countries to facilitating uh, such navigation and to share research arising from such voyages. However, interestingly, Article 13 of that agreement also touches upon the disagreement between both states over sovereignty issues and it provides as follows. Uh, the Government of the United States pledges that all navigation by US icebreakers within waters claimed by Canada to be internal will be, will be undertaken with the consent of the Government of Canada. So here's a concession by uh, the United States that 
if Canada does say that these waters are internal, uh, it will seek to do so uh, with the consent of the Government of Canada. So the first request by the United States for icebreaker transit following the negotiation of this agreement occurred in October 1988 when consent was sought for the transit of the US Coast Guard Cutter Polar Star. In a note from the US Embassy in Ottawa uh, to the Canadian government, the United States expressly sought the consent of the Canadian government for the transit, during which it was made clear that marine scientific research would be conducted uh, during that point in time. Canadian consent was given, and that was the first of five transits between the period 1988 and 2003. Now, one of the pivotal issues that arises in terms of determining the status of the Northwest Passage is whether it's possible to equate it with a single strait, or whether in fact it's a series of straits which connect up to make uh, in whole uh, a series of navigational routes allowing vessels to pass from one side of the uh, North American Arctic uh, through to the other. Now one of the key cases that addresses aspects of this in international law is the seminal Corfu Channel case, a decision by the, United, uh, by the International Court of Justice between the United Kingdom and Albania. And one of the most significant aspects of the Corfu Channel case is the so-called functional requirement uh, that a strait be one that's actually used for international navigation. And so the United States contests the position that the Northwest Passage is actually used for international navigation with respect to transit passage, primarily based on the very low level of international navigation that's actually passed through the strait over history. And there have been different views taken on this matter by eminent scholars, including the eminent Canadian scholar Dono Ferrand, whose view is that because of the very low level of recorded transits through the Northwest Passage, it's not possible to classify that body of water as a strait used for international navigation. And Ferrand identified 15 transits of the Northwest Passage by US flagged vessels in the period up till 2005. However, more recent figures have indicated an upsurge in the number of vessels that are passing through the Northwest Passage. So in 2010, there were 18 annual transits of the passage recorded. In 2012, there were 30 transits and in 2014, there were 17 transits. So what we're seeing here is an increase in the number of ships that are passing through the Northwest Passage. So relying upon the actual use of the passage since its first successful navigation, Ferrand has maintained that the passage is not an international strait. And he would contend that those who argue otherwise are confusing potential use with actual use. However, in May 2013, the United States reasserted its position that it believes that it enjoys the freedom of navigation through the Northwest Passage. So here we have this continuing disagreement between the United States and Canada over this point. Now, the other important waterway uh, in the Arctic is the Bering Strait. And the Bering Strait is bordered by uh, the United States and Russia, uh, and it's approximately 51 nautical miles wide. And it's an interesting strait because it's one in which there are a series of islands and a midway point uh, as vessels pass through uh, the strait, uh, accessing it from the south uh, through the North Pacific uh, into uh, the waters of the Arctic Ocean. And so at the midpoint of the Bering Strait, there are two islands, uh, Big Diomed, uh, which is a Russian island, and Little Diomed, which is a United States island and that effectively creates uh, three navigational channels 
uh, through the middle of the strait. Uh, Bering Strait West, uh, Bering Strait East, and then a very small channel between those two islands, which for our purposes we'll call uh, Diomede Channel, uh, which is only approximately 2.5 uh, nautical miles wide. Now, the strait is recognised by the United States Navy as an international strait for the purposes of the Law of the Sea Convention, so that's an important point to note. But there are other aspects of the strait that are interesting for our purposes. The first is that in 1990, a maritime boundary delimitation agreement was reached between the United States and Russia with respect to the delimitation of the exclusive economic zone and continental shelf boundary through the strait. And while that agreement makes no express reference to navigational rights and freedoms, uh, there is a clear recognition that the maritime boundary will place some constraints on the ability of states to exercise uh, traditional uh, sovereign entitlements and controls over vessels as they pass through uh, those waters. Now, that agreement is yet to enter into force, uh, but nevertheless it's being uh, respected uh, by both states and there's really no disagreement uh, as to the, the fundamental provisions provided for under that instrument. Now, as I've said, um, by and large, the Bering Strait meets all of the geographical characteristics for an international strait for the purposes of the law of the sea. It connects one area of exclusive economic zone and high seas with another area of exclusive economic zone and high seas. And the fact that there may be differential bodies of water that lie between the various islands is really not determinative for the purposes of changing the characterisation of the strait uh, for those purposes. Now, the other issue comes back to the Corfu Channel test and whether or not the strait is one that's used for international navigation. Now, this has been the subject of assessment in the past decade and in 2009, a, a seminal report was issued on Arctic marine shipping. And that report at the time indicated that 150 large commercial vessels passed through the Bering Strait during the July-October period each year. Now that was a report issued in the mid-2000s uh, and one can only imagine that those figures may have increased in more recent times. So to all intents and purposes, the Bering Strait would seem to be a strait that's one's used for international navigation and accordingly the transit passage regime is one that would apply. The fact that there are different uh, navigational routes that might make up, say, uh, an American route or a Russian route uh, is really not one that ultimately impacts upon the status of the strait. Uh, vessels might perhaps encounter slightly different laws and regulations as to whether they're passing through the, the Russian side of the route as opposed to the US side of the route. Uh, but the Law of the Sea Convention does try to ensure that there are some minimum standards and entitlements that will be applied by all states uh, to that end and purpose. Now the strait has been the subject of uh, more recent review as a result of concerns about the upsurge in international navigation through the strait and the potential for increased environmental impact arising uh, from this. And so to that end, uh, in 2010, the United States Coast Guard undertook uh, a process of review uh, and assessment of the status of the strait and has been completing a port access route study. And in November 2015, uh, the United States Coast Guard released details of the proposal for a four mile wide commercial shipping lane that would be declared uh, through the Bering Strait, which would also include vessel traffic services and a traffic separation scheme. And the ultimate objective here will be to ensure uh, the safety of navigation 
the efficient uh, movement of vessels through the strait and also to minimise risks for marine environmental damage arising from that increased shipping activity. So to make some concluding remarks, uh, what I've sought to demonstrate here is that uh, the law of the sea is being understood as having uh, a greater significance and impact for the future of the polar oceans. In the case of the Southern Ocean, uh, whilst the Antarctic Treaty has certainly dominated uh, the legal, political and governance discourse, um, we're now beginning to see uh, more, of the sea, more law of the sea issues gain greater prominence. And we spoke about the significance of continental shelf claims during the past decade, placing a spotlight upon the entitlements of Antarctic claimant states to enjoy the range of entitlements that other coastal states would have uh, in other parts of the world. Now, while the law of the sea has always traditionally had significance in the Arctic, uh, that significance is certainly increasing as a result of the effect of climate change and as a result of uh, greater commercial interest for potential shipping and navigation through Arctic waters. And as a result, we're seeing a, a rapid change in terms of expectation uh, and focus and contestation about legal issues in the Arctic uh, that we've never seen previously. And indeed, our discussion of the Northwest Passage and Bering Strait uh, sees, seeks to highlight those issues. And indeed, there's lots of debate and discussion about the development of so-called trans-Arctic shipping routes in which vessels would be able to uh, bring trade and cargo from uh, ports in uh, Southeast and Northeast Asia uh, and use Arctic shipping routes to be able to uh, transport those goods into markets in North America and certainly within Europe. So there will be continuing focus and attention on Arctic shipping issues as a result of that particular dimension. Now we've also spoken about the role of the Commission on the Limits of the Continental Shelf, but it also needs to be recalled that one of the consequences of the outcomes of those processes will be a further delineation as to those parts of the seabed that can be genuinely called parts of the deep seabed for the purposes of part 11 of the Law of the Sea Convention and that will ultimately see the role of the International Seabed Authority uh, come under greater scrutiny as it applies with respect to the polar regions. The law of the sea, therefore, in my view, remains crucial to understanding the ongoing management and framework of the polar regions, and we will continuing to see uh, interesting interactions between uh, the global regime of the law of the sea and the regional regimes that exist in Antarctica and the Arctic well into the future.